I next met with Dr. Hagup Kantarjan to chat about myeloid cancers at ASH. And to begin, he commented on abstracts 521 and 2758, looking at genetic abnormalities in patients with MDS. Both of these abstracts show similar findings. So what the investigators in both of these studies did is to look at a set of known and putative genetic abnormalities in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. And both studies report that there are six molecular abnormalities which occur at a rate of about 10% or more and which are prognostic. And these are the TP53, EZH2, RANX1, ASXL1, SF3B1, and DNMT3A. In both of these studies, they do multivariate analysis, and they found consistently that the first five genes have a prognostic effect. The first four of them have an adverse event, and then SF3B1 has a favorable effect. So now what we're going to see is if you have a patient with myelodysplastic syndrome, I think many of us will start doing this set of molecular profiling of at least these six genes and then categorize the patients not only based on their clinical findings, but also on the molecular findings. So you could have a patient that could be defined as low risk by the clinical models, but where you have two or three mutations that suggest that the patient is going to do worse, and then you could start with an earlier intervention than we do today. And I think that's going to be a common theme in myelofibrosis in the next five years, that is identify patients not only based on the IPSS or the clinical cytogenetic profile, but in addition, we're going to look at the molecular profiling to subcategorize them better and maybe design treatments that will affect them hopefully more favorably. Do any of these abnormalities sort of suggest potential targeted therapies that could be used? That's correct. So several of these molecular abnormalities are epigenetically modulated. So what we're hoping is that, for example, a patient with EZH2, RANCS1, or the NMT3A will be a patient that will respond better to epigenetic therapies such as hypomethylating agents. But these are studies that are ongoing trying to take enough patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, putting them on epigenetic therapies, and then running the profile of the molecular abnormalities and try to predict which patients do better or worse. Now, can this be looked at retrospectively or only prospectively? It can be looked at retrospectively if we have samples stored, and this is what many of the investigators in MDS are doing. There's also a consortium that's looking at that. But the data is solid enough now for people to start potentially implementing this in the clinical practice. So, for example, one of the abstracts had over a 1,000 patients analyzed, and they had a training set and a validation set, and they confirmed the findings. So I think the findings are very solid and very relevant to our practice today. And what kind of technique is used? Usually, once you have done the discovery of the genes, you can have the molecular profiling on a smaller subset of genes. So it's really not expensive and it's not that tedious. It can be done very easily in commercial labs. But this would be fish? No, it will be on the DNA of the samples. So a bone marrow sample where you extract the DNA and then you run the tests for the molecular abnormalities. Is it like a next generation sequencing? Exactly, but you don't have to have a deep sequencing because the molecular abnormalities are known. So you just have to target those six molecular abnormalities and then 
profile the patient according to the molecular risk. Any comments on ASH papers looking at combining a hypomethylating agent and another molecule? What we see is a series of abstracts that try to combine decytabine or isocytidine with agents which are approved for the treatment of myelodysplastic syndrome like lenalinomide, which is an immune modulatory inhibitory derivative of thalidomide, or with HDAC inhibitors such as vorinostat or others. In reviewing the combination studies, even though the investigators conclude that they are encouraged by the findings, when you look at the data objectively, I do not think any of these studies have shown an improved efficacy compared to single-agent hypomethylating agents. One potential exception is the possibility that some of the HDAC inhibitors may not all be similar, and there are a few of them, like a drug called Placinostat, which is undergoing now a randomized study. So there's a study of isocytidine with or without Placinostat, which may give us, in a phase two randomized study, a lead as to whether this should be pursued or not. Short of that, I think we have to start looking for either agents which are along the same class of the hypomethylating agents like SGI-110 or that have mechanistic different potentials such as Onconova-1910. So in this regard, there is an update of SGI-110. SGI-110 is a molecule that combines decytabine with guanosine. So the consequence of that is that the drug can produce higher areas under the curve of the release decytabine and the half-life of the drug is better. There have been studies that looked at SGI-110 in a five-day schedule, 10-day schedule, and different dosages. And my own impression and the studies reported at ASH do show that SGI-110 is a drug to be reckoned with in terms of continuing potentially with pivotal trials that compare SGI-110 to either azacitidine or decytabine in the setting of myelodysplastic syndrome or acute myeloid leukemia. So this is a drug to keep in mind, and I do believe it's going to be a significant drug in the future based on the published data so far. The third important study is the one that looked at the outcome of patients with myelodysplastic syndrome who failed either azacitidine or decytabine because the common thinking or the common belief is that even though the patients have failed the hypomethylating agents, the course of MDS is indolent enough so that they could live for long periods of time. We had previously published in the past that patients with higher risk MDS who fail azacitidine and decytabine have a median survival of only four to six months, making them more analogous in their course to patients with acute myeloid leukemia and at this ASH meeting, Dr. Elias Jabur looked at the outcome of low-risk patients who fail hypomethylating agents, and he reported that the average survival of these patients is about 12 to 14 months, and this is abstract 388. So this tells us again that those patients are at high risk once they have failed the standard of care and that they should be considered for either allogeneic transplant or investigational therapies that could improve their outcome. What do you do specifically nowadays yourself in patients who aren't candidates for allotransplant? What I do in these patients is try to enter them on investigational studies that are believed to improve their outcome. So we have a study with SGI-110. 
I've also considered these patients with clofarabine, low-dose RSE, and we've had very good results with this combination, although it's a little bit more toxic. And then we look at additional investigational agents such as cepacitabine or Oncomnova 1910 in this context. What do you recommend to a doc in practice as a patient doesn't want to go into a trial or can't get into a trial? If a patient is in private practice with myelodysplastic syndrome who have failed azacitidine or decitabine, I think the next step would be a consideration of a combination of clofarabine low-dose RSE. Now, if the patient is younger with a high percent of BLAS, then I would consider an AML-type chemotherapy such as idarubicin high-dose RSE or FLAG-IDA to try to get them in a remission and then consider a transplant. Let's talk about papers on acute leukemias. Any comment on the plenary presentation on the pathophysiology of therapy-related AML? In brief, what that study alludes to is that perhaps 40% of normal individuals who are over the age of 50 can have cells that contain uh, P53 deletion. And once those patients are under the pressure effect of either chemotherapy or radiation for other cancers, then they could select for these clones, which can then cause the therapy-related AML with a high incidence of P53 mutations, which are selected for chemotherapy resistance. So I thought this was a very interesting finding because it is possible in the future that if you have any patient with a cancer who's going to be exposed to chemo and radiation, that we could develop methodologies that look at the potential of cells that contain P53, and if we find them, then these patients will be labeled potentially at being at a higher risk of developing therapy-related AML, and then maybe we can either change their treatment or monitor them more closely to intervene before they develop full-blown MDS or acute myeloid leukemia. I thought this was a very interesting study. Now, in terms of the therapy of acute myeloid leukemia, I want to highlight four lines of thinking. The first one is in acute promyelostic leukemia. So there have been a couple of papers and an increasing evidence and information related to the fact that non-chemotherapy-related regimens with atra and arsenic trioxide are improving the outcome of acute promyelostic leukemia to the point where we can anticipate that 80 or 90% of the patients can be cured with atra-arsenic trioxide-based therapy. So I think I'd like to encourage the community of oncologists to review these and consider such approaches in APL. Could you talk more specifically about the data that was presented and, you know, sort of how it was different or how it enhanced our understanding of this issue? So then the second line of thinking is in the core binding factor leukemias. And again, in the past, the common thinking was if you have a patient with translocation A21 or inversion 16, you induce them with 3 plus 7, give them 3 to 4 cycles of high-dose RSE, and then the potential cure rate is about 50%, which was thought then to be quite high. What we have seen in the new wave of studies, particularly from SWOG and MRC, is that among the patients who receive intensive therapy plus gemtuzumab ozogomycin, the estimated cure rate in these patients is closer to 80%. So I think in the core binding factor leukemias, we should not be satisfied anymore with the cure rate of about 50%, but we should look at studies that 
intensify the high-dose RSE and combine it with gemtuzumab ozogomycin whenever it's possible to improve the cure rate of these patients. In this context, there was an abstract at ASH, which was by Dr. Alan Burnett. And what this study shows in the analysis of 89 patients with core binding factor leukemias is that the use of FLAG-IDA, but also more importantly, of gentumuzumab has been associated now with a survival rate of 84% since 2008. So this is a very important finding that people need to keep in mind. Now, the third line of thinking relates to the use of gemtuzumab ozogomycin, which is the CD33 monoclonal antibody, which is bound to calichiamycin. So as people know, the drug was approved for the setting of acute myeloid leukemia salvage based on the response rate. And then the drug was withdrawn in 2007 because the SWOG confirmatory study did not show the benefit of the gemtuzumab. But that study was a bit flawed because the arm that had the gentuzumab gave a lower dose of donorubicin, 45 milligram per meter square versus 60 milligrams per meter square. Now at this ASH meeting, there are several studies, including a meta-analysis of five studies of ATRA, which showed that ATRA offers a significant survival benefit, not only in the favorable leukemias, such as the core binding factor leukemias, but also in the leukemias that are not unfavorable, and these are usually patients with a deployed karyotype. Then there was an update on a pediatric leukemia study, which had about 1,000 patients with acute myeloid leukemia, and those patients received gemtuzumab at a dose of 3 milligram per meter square during the induction course and then during the intensification. And this study showed that the event-free survival at three years is significantly better among the children who received the gemtuzumab, 53% versus 47%. And also what they showed is that among patients who achieve complete remission, the incidence of relapse is significantly lower in these patients compared to the ones who did not receive gemtuzumab. So I think there's enough data to suggest that we have to have a second look at gemtuzumab and perhaps make it available again for the community practice to be able to treat patients not only with the favorable leukemias, the favorable AMLs, but also the ones with intermediate risk disease. Any sort of global take of the whole gemtuzumab story looking all the way back? You know, any comments on sort of what happened? I think a lot of it depends on the advocacy of the disease groups as well as perhaps if you want to look at it cynically at the market. So acute myeloid leukemia is a rare disease. Unlike breast cancer, you don't have a strong advocacy on the part of the patients. And it is our fault that we did not advocate more strongly as the acute myeloid leukemia experts. And then perhaps the market for gemtuzumab, which was only $20 million a year then, was not considered to be something to fight for in contrast to drugs which are used in the more common tumors and which have a billion-dollar market a year. But I think we have to do what's right for the patients. And now that we have enough data that suggests that gemtuzumab could be effective in acute myeloid leukemia and several subsets, I think we have to allow the drug to get back on the market to help these patients who need it the most. Do you think that there's a future for other antibody drug conjugate approaches in AML? 
Absolutely. So it's interesting that you mentioned this. As you know, in acute lymphocytic leukemia, there have been engineered biallelic, bispecific monoclonal antibodies where one arm of the monoclonal attaches to the T-killer cell and the other arm attaches to the CD19, which is selectively found on ALL cells. And this is how blinatumumab was designed and is found to be highly effective. At this ASH meeting, there was an abstract looking at a biallelic monoclonal antibody that has one arm linked to the CD3 and the other one to the CD33. So I'm hoping that this monoclonal antibody will be developed. This is abstract 360 and abstract 359. What they talk about is about an anti-CD33 by specific antibody. And then there's another one which is potentially targeting CD123. So I do think that now that there is success proven with linatumumab, which targets CD19, that we are going to see additional bispecific monoclonal antibodies that target either CD33 or CD123. Any other papers on AML you want to comment on? Yes, so the last one is the paper on the FLT3 inhibitors, in particular quizartinib. So as you know, quizartinib has undergone several large-scale salvage studies that showed that the drug is quite effective in the studies of patients with FLT3 ITD mutation. There was a concern about the QTC prolongation at dosages of 90 to 120 milligrams a day. So there have been additional studies looking at 30 and 60 milligrams a day, and they show that the efficacy is maintained and the incidence of QT prolongation is significantly lower. So Dr. Jorge Cortez in the abstract 494 looks at quizartinib 30 and 60 milligrams orally daily, and what they report is the incidence of marrow-complete remission remains in the range of 45%, in fact 47%, compared to a similar incidence for dosages of 90 to 200 milligrams a day, and yet the incidence of prolonged QTC interval, which was of concern, decreased from a range of 40 to 50% to under 20%. So I think this opens the potential for continuing with the development of quizartinib and hopefully getting an FDA approval for the drug. Any comments on where velocertib is? We saw an interesting data on that at the last dash, the polo-like kinase inhibitor in AML. Velocertib, as you mentioned, is the polo-like kinase inhibitor, which was so far developed in Europe. And the European studies did a phase two randomized study of low-dose RAC plus or minus velocertib. And what they found is that the combination improves the remission rate and there was a significant trend for a better survival. So they have designed the pivotal trials, which are multinational, including in the United States, looking at this combination in older patients with acute myeloid leukemia. And I'm hoping that this study will be positive because it's been a long, long time for any significant drug in acute myeloid leukemia to be FDA approved. So I'm really hoping for either a return of the gemtuzumab to the market or the potential approval of either a FLT3 inhibitor or a drug with a unique mechanistic action such as volacertib as a polo-like kinase inhibitor. Any speculations about how long it'll be before we have some answers? The study has started and is accruing, and there's a lot of enthusiasm about putting patients on the study. 
So I'm really hoping that the study will complete the accrual within the next 12 months, and then you have to wait for another 12 months. So perhaps in two to three years, we will be looking at a drug that could have a potential FDA approval. I want also to mention Vosaroxin, because even though it wasn't at this ASH meeting, Vosaroxin is a topo-2 isomerase inhibitor, which in contrast to the anthracyclines is not MDR pumped and does not have cardiotoxicity. And the salvage studies of high-dose RSC plus or minus Vosaroxin have completed accrual. So we're just waiting for the follow-up to see if the drug shows a survival benefit and hopefully might get FDA approval. We don't know. So you want to move on to ALL? Yes. So let's move to ALL. And there in ALL, I think there are some exciting follow-up studies, for example, in Philadelphia, positive ALL, but also exciting studies in terms of the immuno-oncology, in particular the studies that either reported on the monoclonal antibodies in ALL or on the T-cell engineered with chimeric antigen receptors targeting CD19. So I'm going to start with the Philadelphia-positive ALL, and there are now several follow-up studies in this context of chemotherapy with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, either the satinib or nilotinib, or a pilot study from our institution with ponatinib. And all of those studies are showing now that without allogeneic transplantation, the five-year survival of these patients can be as high as 50%. So I think here we are on solid grounds to say that combined chemotherapy with targeted therapies with tyrosine kinase inhibitors is the new standard of care in Philadelphia positive ALL, and it gives very good results. There have been updates of the two monoclonal antibodies in ALL. One of them is inotuzumab, which is targeting CD22. So there were updates on the single agent activity, but also on a study that combined inotuzumab with mini doses of chemotherapy, the hyperceived. And these studies are showing that the single agent can produce marrow-complete response rates of about 40%, and that the combination with chemotherapy is producing in older patients a high rate of complete remission, but also durable remissions. The other study is with the CD19 uh, by allylic monoclonal antibody. So we're talking here about blinatumumab, and this agent is generating a lot of enthusiasm because there is the impression that the response rates are high and they are durable. So we hope that both of these drugs will, in the foreseeable future, have a look at them in terms of their potential approval. Now, the new field, which is exciting a lot of investigators, are the re-engineered T-cells. So there have been several studies of the CAR T-cells in patients with either chronic lymphocytic leukemia or acute lymphocytic leukemia, which are showing that once the cells are prepared and given to the patients, particularly in the context of acute lymphocytic leukemia, that most of the patients are achieving complete remissions and some of them are durable. So there was a study by Dr. Grubb, which is abstract 67, that showed that among 20 patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia that received those CAR T-cells 14 of them, or 82% of the evaluable patients, achieved a complete remission. A second study was by Dr. Davila that looked at 13 patients. And again, they reported that 10 of the 12 patients 
who had active disease became minimal residual disease negative. And finally, there was a study by Dr. Lee that showed the same thing. Five of seven patients receiving those T-cells achieved the remission. Now, with all of these studies, there is the concern of what's called a delayed cytokine release syndrome, which is manifested by fever, myalgias, nausea, and anorexia. And this happens because it is believed that this is the reaction of the T-cells killing the leukemia cells. And it could be alleviated with some approaches such as steroids or anti-IL-6 strategies. One of the ASH studies on CARs from MD Anderson, what did you all see there? We've had several patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia who achieved a remission that was longer than the previous one. So we're excited about the findings. The problem, of course, is the ability to collect those T-cells, expand them, and then give them back to the patients because the technology can fail sometimes or the patients can progress before they can receive the drug. So it's a very exciting approach, but it's an approach that needs to be further evaluated in terms of its applicability and also the side effects. Can you provide sort of a more clinical view of sort of what these people go through, particularly in terms of toxicity? Most of the patients have, again, what's called the delayed cytokine release syndrome. So they receive the treatment and then Within a week or two later, they develop fever, bone aches, muscle aches, nausea, vomiting, anorexia. And then with appropriate management and early intervention, particularly with steroids and anti-IL-6 measures, then the symptoms can be alleviated. And we're learning how to treat those side effects more efficiently. So I think in the future, we'll be able to make this therapy applicable to the patients who need it. Now, can you develop it in the frontline setting? I think that's possible. So, for example, in the future, we could have patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia or chronic lymphocytic leukemia that you can put in a remission so they have minimal disease. You take their T-cells if they are still effective and you modify them, expand them, and then give them to the patients. And therefore, you could, with that sequential strategy, potentially increase the cure rate and obviate the need of additional chemotherapy, which is today about three years in patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia. What about practical issues in implementing the therapy, the cost of it, you know, sort of what's involved? Could you see this being done at a community setting someday in the future? Numerous practical issues. The first question is, can you implement it as a commercial approach? And this is where some pharmaceutical companies have invested in those studies. So we're hoping that with the appropriate infrastructure and funding that those studies could become scalable and could be implemented. Now, whether it has to continue to be in a research or academic setting or whether it could be a commercial product that could be delivered by a source or a pharmaceutical company is something that people are looking at. In terms of CLL, which we're really not talking about, but since we're talking about CAR, how do you see this being developed and at the same time all these you know, exciting small molecules? So in fact, we had this discussion in our leukemia meeting today. We had a whole session dedicated to chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And as you know, there are very exciting new molecules developed in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So in addition to the chemoimmunotherapy like fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, rituximab, and bendamustine rituximab, 
there is now this whole group of B cell receptor inhibitors, including bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors like ibrutinib, PI3 kinase inhibitors like idilalisib, and others which are being developed, which are showing fantastic results in terms of disease control. But these are oral pills that have to be given on a continuous basis. There's also the BCL2 inhibitors such as ABT199, which are providing also very exciting, fantastic high response rates, including high incidences of complete remission. So the question that I asked Dr. Keating, who was the presenter, is how do you see the development of the CAR T cells in this context? And in fact, his answer was, well, possibly we could induce patients in a remission with one of these approaches, let's say FCR or BR, and then we could take their T cells, expand them, and give them those infusions. And then instead of looking at durable remissions for several years, we can potentially look at the cure of these patients. Now, the CAR T cells could be even more appropriate for subsets of patients which do poorly today on our strategies, such as patients with CLL who have a 17P abnormality or 11Q23, or patients who do not have the somatic hypermutation. So these are patients on the standard therapies that achieve remissions but relapse very quickly, and perhaps combinations of these strategies or the new B-cell receptor inhibitors with CAR T-cells would allow the achievement of durable complete remissions in these patients. Yeah, when you started to talk, I was assuming you were going to say, he said, well, maybe in the future we'll start out with one of these B-cell small molecules and then go to CAR therapy, And but you said FCR. Well, you have to be careful because with the FCR now, we find that the patients who are not 17P mutated and who have the somatic hypermutation, we find that about 60% of them are on a plateaued curve beyond 10 years. So we're starting to talk about the possibility that FCR-based therapy for three or six cycles could produce in this subset of patients, which are about 40% of the patients with CLL, it could produce long-term durable remissions, which could be equivalent to cures. So these are the patients that we would like to continue looking at FCR-based therapy, perhaps three cycles rather than six cycles based on minimal residual disease, and maybe add the B-cell receptor inhibitors as a maintenance therapy. Now, you are absolutely correct for the other patients, the 60%, where we do not see a plateau of the curve and who with FCR or BR therapy continue to relapse. These are the patients that you could look at single or combination therapies with B-cell receptor inhibitors and see if you improve the survival of these patients. And I'm sure we will because the early data in 17P and other subsets in the salvage and frontline setting are showing much better results than we obtained in the past with chemoimmunotherapy such as FCR or BR.